Hi, welcome to the Plus Up podcast brought to you by Media Plus Advisors. I'm Susan George, one of the partners at Media Plus Advisors, and I'm here today with my fellow partners, Carly Feinstein and Perry Ann Grignan. Media Plus Advisors is a consultancy specializing in the needs of the media marketing and advertising industry. And on our podcast, we like to tackle an array of issues that marketers and agencies are focused on. So with that, we have a guest today that Perry Ann is going to introduce us to. Hi, everybody. This is Perry Ann, and say hello uh, to Richie Glassberg. Richie is currently, um, the, I guess you're the founder, right? And <clears throat> chief something else officer at Safeguard Privacy. Um, before we like get into the questions and stuff, um, you know, Richie, tell us um, how you got there and what you're doing there now. So Perry Ann, thank you. Um, this is my seventh startup, my fourth outside of a big media company, three inside big media companies. I'm the co-founder and CEO, but you know I'm also the head of sales, head of finance, head of uh, marketing, head of product, all that. Um, and it, it's an interesting path to get here. Uh, so where did I come from? I'm one of those, I'm probably one of the weirdest people out there in that I came out of the cable industry um, in the 80s. I was a young kid at MTV Networks and got to be the first person to sell all the networks. Um, and then I went to this little company called Turner Broadcasting. Uh, I spent nine years at Turner Broadcasting. That's where I was lucky enough to get to call on the phenomenal AT&T client, Perry Ann Grignan. Uh, which was a lot of fun in my in my younger days. Um, and um, and then I, I moved into digital in 95. But before I get to that, I, I do want to say a lot of my worldview, Perry Ann um, and Carly and Susan, comes from growing up in the early days of cable and being under some tremendous leaders. Um, you know, Geraldine Laybourne at Nickelodeon, Tom Freston at MTV, Bob Pittman, uh, the people that ran sales there that were incredibly famous, you know, Harvey Gano and a bunch of the others there. And then going to Turner and working for Ted Turner for nine years and getting to work under the legendary John Barbera, uh, Rick Servitis, who went on to run General Motors Media Works. Um, you know, they're just the the names, Joe Yuva, uh, Lou Latore, some of the most famous names in 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 revenue in the media industry with incredible backgrounds and an incredible belief in one thing that I think, Perry Ann, you can, you can attest to. We were always taught it was the client's money. And I think it was the basis for all of our sales and all of our partnerships. And, you know, people throw around these words now, but back then that's what it was. We were partnering with people, fully partnering, and we always had the ethos it was the client's money. So that's that's really where... I come from, which is a lot different than most people in the internet space, um, which makes me a little bit of a different animal. In 1995, I was lucky enough, Rick Servitis was president of CNN Sales. I was lucky enough to get called into a conference room with a guy named Harry Matro, who was Ted's M&A lawyer, a guy named Scott Wolfel, um, a guy named Mark Bernstein uh, and Jimmy and um, Ted Turner. And they said, hey, we're going to start a website on the Internet. And it was January of 1995. And I honestly raised my hand and said, what's that? And, um, uh, you know, I, you know, in, in polite company, I, I can't say what Ted said, but um, it was pretty funny. 
Um, we went downstairs on 38th and 5th to CompUSA, and we bought the book Access the Internet, which was a spiral round book. And on the back of the back cover, there was a floppy disk. And we all got, um, I was Richie at netcom.ix.com, the night server at netcom for my email, Harry, Scott, because you have to understand, there were not computers on everybody's desk. There was maybe Wang word processors. There were still secretaries. I'm sorry, not my fault, but it was real. Um, and um, we didn't have computers. We didn't have computers. No executives had computers back then. So, and maybe you had Prodigy at home, but I didn't. Uh, you know, I, I admit it. I was a I was a knucklehead. Uh, and we spent from January of 1995 to August 31st um, figuring it out. And on August 31st, 1995, we launched CNN.com. We built it over the next five years to CNN.com, CNN International, CNN SI. We took Sports Illustrated out of Time, Inc., CNN FN. We became the first profitable website in the world. You know, why? Um, we went, At one point, I went to at one meeting with Ted when we were all there. I said, well, you know, why did we outsource it like uh, ESPN did to Starwave? And he said, Richie, if we can't learn a new technology, I got the wrong people. My brand, CNN's brand, is, is the most important thing to the company. And his thesis was, I'm hiring journalists and I'm putting them out there with a camera, but they all started as journalists. So he literally had every single story that was filed, the journalist after the tape was done, had to write the story. So we had all this content, it was great. So if you go back and look at the original CNN.com, it was a phenomenal, we had video, hard to get to, because dial-up was brutal, right? But we had all the elements that people are doing today, and it was pretty cool. So did that, um, at the same time I did that, in 1996, because of my background, I go back to cable. I got invited with 30 other people to a meeting at CNET, um, headed by Kate Everett Thorpe, who is just a wonderful executive in this space. And that was the founding meeting of the IAB. And with 30 other people, we founded the IAB. I became one of the eight steering people. I became the vice chairman for a year. Two through five with Rich Lafergy. Um, I was the guy that was tasked with creating the eight standard banner sizes for internet advertising, which is another long story. Um, Rich and I did the T's and C's. Um, we figured out the pricing model to get everybody on board. Um, you know, we hired the first heads of the IAB, Robin Webster and then Greg Stewart. Um, I actually hosted it at my next company. So um, my life in cable was why cable versus broadcast. So I was very exposed to the CAB at an early age and what, you know, the research for the industry. And it was really a, a couple of us, Scott Schiller, who I think was a prodigy. Um, he and I were at MTV together, a couple others from the cable world. And we really drove this concept of, you know, an industry group to, you know, if, Ted always said, I want to drive cable and the biggest, all the boats will rise, but I got the biggest boat. So that was a pretty cool thing. And I've been involved for a long time in that. After about four or five years, I decided that there wasn't a premium ad network out there. So I left and I started Phase Two Media, which became the first real premium ad network. A lot of the biggest names have come out of there. Um, you know, we represented 60 brands exclusively. So the, 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 environment was you had double click representing 5,000 brands 24 seven and people, you know, people at AT&T or Home Depot or P&G were afraid to put their ads in all these crazy places. How funny is it where we've come now? Let's come full circle to that and programmatically, you don't know crap. Um, 
And uh, so we created this. So I represented the NHL around the world, the Sydney Olympics. I was a company that represented them, all of Hachette. Um, we just had great brands, about 60 brands. I got John Trimble away from the NFL. He's now the CMO of Pandora. Um, Molly Spillman was my first head of marketing and partnerships. And she went on to run Critio and now is running all of Oracle Data. She's an amazing executive. Uh, Diane Silverstein, who ran books at... Um, at uh, Condé Nast, ran all of our fashion stuff. I mean, the list of people that came out of there is is pretty amazing. Uh, Mark Goldberg, who's running MMI now. I mean, it's just you know Danny uh, Danny Lovinger, who's the head of NBC Sports. Pete Lazarus, um, Matt Spengler. I mean, the list is just tremendous. The men and women uh, who came out of that. And that was a lot of fun. We filed to go public on February of 2020, and then oops, uh, the market turned. Um, you know, the world crashed in 2021. I went to News Corp for nine years. Uh, be very specific. I never touched Fox News. I ran Speed Channel for three years. And then for, for a guy named Jeff Shell, who's now running Comcast. And then Jeff had me come over with a couple people. And I was part of the turnaround of Gemstar TV Guide. I did everything but the magazine. I did the first advanced TV, the first uh, IPGs, data, the guides. We sold it to Macrovision, and then Ryan O'Hara, my boss, and I sold it again to Lionsgate. Uh, it's very funny how the world goes. Everybody said, oh, you're not a digital guy. I'm like, really? Um, so I took a job as a COO of a healthcare company in San Francisco, kind of ahead of our time in the social space, helped them turn it around for a year and a half, and then realized I really didn't like um, every Monday morning flying to San Francisco, living there for three days and flying home. Uh, the kids, even as the kids were in uh, older, it just was brutal. Um, and then uh, uh, two pretty famous VCs, Foundry and Draper Fisher Gotham, brought me into a company called Medialets, and they were the original um, rich media company in mobile. And they have a they had great, great visionary founder Eric Lippman, and they wanted to um, pivot the company as mobile exploded, and and they brought me in as Eric's partner. And we turned the company from a rich media company to the first mobile ad server, worked with on the board of the uh, MRC. We, I, I helped George Ivey figure out what the standards for mobile measurement was. We served all the holding companies out there, which was a lot of fun, being the one guy to serve all the holding companies. And then one day Google said, oh, mobile, this is a thing. We'll have double click, we'll have our ad server do mobile. So we sold the company to WPP became a WPP subsidiary, helped uh, Irwin and Martin fix a bunch of stuff for a couple of years, and then took the first break of my life after you know two years post-acquisition. And I had a couple ideas. And I had two ideas that I decided I wanted to incubate and go back and do it all on my own. One didn't work, um, and the other one did. And my the idea that has worked is privacy. And I had this thought that the privacy regulations are going to be brutal for everybody in the industry, clients especially, agencies especially, marketers. And, and I felt that a lot of the ills that had happened over the last 10 years in digital, programmatic, forgetting the consumer, just abusing them out there is what was driving these laws. And when I started, it was just GDPR. Now we've got CCPA, we've got Brazil, we've got Nevada, other countries around the world. And I wanted to build a couple of things. I wanted to build the most comprehensive assessment to the laws because I looked at, and there's like 200 companies doing shit around privacy. None of them come from our space. None of them understand how hard it is to be a publisher, an SSP, a DSP, data, client. None of them understand this. And, um, and that's what I built. And I found, I knew I needed a 
partner. So my co-founder who's not on this with me today, Wayne Mattis is probably one of the most famous privacy lawyers in the world the last 25 years. And we built an original product that we launched uh, last January, um, 2020. And I just forgot to have global pandemic on my bingo card, but we're doing great. Um, and we're we're actually we're actually doing great, um, and we've got a bunch of really cool stuff um, that I I can't talk about a lot of stuff, but a lot of stuff's going to come public in the next thirty to sixty days that you guys know about. And so I'm one of the unique people that's been a publisher CEO, a network CEO, an agency CEO subsidiary to Martin. When you're a subsidiary CEO, it's a subsidiary, right? And an ad tech CEO. And I've done industry stuffs at a couple of different important points in the industry. So I have a unique perspective of where we are. And that is all colored by, as I laid it out when we started, the fact that I come from a world of it's the client's money and you have to earn it every day. So is that a, was that, oh, then the last thing I will mention this, because I do have to do this. You guys know this. In 1999, when I left Turner and started phase two media, um, my older sister got very sick with breast cancer. So she lived and it's great, but um, we got help from this very famous uh, doctor, Dr. Marisa Weiss, who wrote the book, Living Beyond Breast Cancer. And when my sister turned the corner, even while I was starting phase two media, I helped found uh, breastcancer.org. I'm still on the board. I'm the only person who's been on the board for 20 years. Um, we are the largest site for women in the world with breast cancer. We served 23 million unique women around the world last year in English and Spanish. We're the leading informational site, and it's what I believe the internet should be, frictionless distribution of real vetted information. It's the most important uh, place for women in the world to get information on any subtitle of breast cancer. So that's where I come from. Did I cover enough, perry Amazing, amazing. amazing. Um, you know, I, um, you know, you listed like 80 people that I, I, I just know and love, um, you know, so if, Digital advertising was the Lakers. Um, I think they beat Golden State last night, by the way, um, <laughs> which was hard for me to watch. But um, if digital advertising was the Lakers, obviously you had the Nicholson seat. You know, like you, you've been there, you know, right on the court. So when I, um, you know, I read Ad Exchanger every morning. And, and when I read that, that um, byline or that article that you had, you know, a couple of weeks back and I called you about it, you know, you were talking about, you know, fixing digital advertising. And so the first question is, how did you come to believe that digital advertising needs to be fixed? So I, I do need to put, I need to, to add to that a little bit. I mean, to put it in context, just, just so people understand, I did the first bake-off for an ad server. I mean, there weren't ad servers. When I was running CNN.com, we hard-coded the ads in. I ran the first bake-off ever for an ad server, and it was between NetGravity and DoubleClick. So John Nardone was at um, Modem, you know him, um, you know, uh, Sharon was there, GM was, everybody was there, and they're like, hey, you gotta figure out a better way to do this. And the wild thing about my role in the world back then was, you know, I was at CNN, so we had to sign the journalistic oath of integrity. And if you remember back to the 90s, people were just handing friends and family stock by my use my software. Well, I couldn't do that. So I actually did what I believe clients should be doing today and you can help them with is we did a bake-off. We had NetGravity come in. Double click come in. I had my engineers from Atlanta. We looked at the code, looked at everything, and we picked net gravity because they had better code. 
Um, so I've been obsessed with this from the beginning. I think we made a lot of going very fast and it was hard to understand the implications mistakes. So like if you're driving a car down the highway at five miles an hour and you look at your phone to, to see a text, which you never should do, but you drift a little bit, you have time to fix it. If you're on 95 going 80 miles an hour and you look down at your phone, which you should never do, and you drift, you don't got a lot of time to fix it. And you could be in really big trouble and you've traveled 50 miles by the time you realize you fucked up. So I, I feel like at the beginning, people are like, oh, this is great. We can measure everything. Let's measure clicks. Clicks don't mean shit. They've never meant shit. They've never meant anything. Clicks are horrible. Right? Clicks have never meant anything. We didn't know how to track people. We didn't know how to figure stuff out. So they used a cookie, which is a, just a TXT file, which was not built for this as the, as the basis of identity. That's like building the Empire State Building on quicksand. It's horrible. You can't build an industry on false numbers. Look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call it out. Uh, Perry Ann, you guys know this better than you. Carly, Susan, how many times has Facebook publicly said that they misstated their calculations? Well, you were all clients or working with clients. I think the number is over 17, right? If, if the New York Times came out and said, we miscalculated uh, how many papers we dropped off, there'd be hell to pay. I know yeah. I'm skipping ahead, but the, the truth is, we're blinded by the new, we're blinded by what we don't know, we're blinded by all this stuff so that we fake it and then we let people get away with murder. And I think the problem is that we don't have real identity. Some people do, like Amazon's got real identity. Why is that important, right? Who, um, uh, Netflix got real identity. The people that I have a relationship, the four of us talking, we can't live without Amazon. They have my credit card, they have both my addresses, they know everything I buy. I happily give them my identity because they make my life easier. They send me the cat food I need, they send me the dog food I need, they send me the books I want. Whatever I need, I know I can do that. But I count on Amazon keeping that identity secure because they have a trusted relationship with me. I think part of the problem was you don't have a trusted relationship with DoubleClick or with an ad server. You don't have a trusted relationship with a social media site. You're not paying for that. They're not doing anything. And I think, I think we've missed identity terribly. And I think the original sin was we counted the wrong things and we didn't figure out hard what identity was. Now let's, and I hate to sound like, you know, hey, get off my lawn, because I'm not. I'm out there pushing stuff every day, but when you were buying television before internet or print or, or radio, you had real data. I mean, it wasn't perfect, but it was data that was overlaid with census data and you did very important things as an advertiser. You could blank out a GRP, uh, excuse me, a DMI, take all advertising out of there and see the lift on what real advertising did and you could make there's 50 years of reach and frequency curves, of GRP lift, of real data that shows real sales on stuff. You know, I mean, yes. So why can't we do that today? I'm not somebody saying we should go back to the old ways. I'm saying we have to take the old things that we did that were the bedrock of a marketer. Who did I sell my product to? How many units did I sell? And what helped me sell it? And I don't believe that the Wanamaker thing should be 50 I know, 50 I don't. I think 
it's it's depressing that people accept it today that they can't solve for the other half because I think we should be able, maybe it's not 50-50, but we should be able to get to 80-90. I mean, you guys have been doing this as long as I am. Don't you agree? You've all been clients. Don't you agree with that, Perry? Carlos? Totally. Yes, yes. You know, um, I think that when I read your piece, you were really talking about like getting to like the next the next better thing. But I do agree with where you just were that there's way different kinds of relationships out there. You know, back when, you know, I was traveling all the time, you know, I wanted American Airlines to know exactly who I was. And I always sat in 9D and, you know, all of those things. But and you know what the best part was? I bribed my friend at American to tell me you were in 9D and I used to send you flowers on the plane. Just kidding. But I mean, that's what that's what happens when you don't. But but that's actually pretty funny. Perry Ann. Um, I, mean, I can't say brand names. There are companies that know you're in 9D and, and send you something and you don't want them to know you're in 9D. And how the hell they know I was in 9D? Why does Critio know that I was in that basket? And why are they sending me something over here out of context? And we fun. feel different about it. You know, I feel different consumers. about it. We do feel, feel different about it. And, and the reality is that there is part of your life you want to be your privacy, right? The privacy is huge in our country. And there's part of your life that you want to be serviced and you want to have things work for you better because it's the frictionless part of society. And I, I think, look, I had 800 words to say that in ad exchanger. You know, we could talk for three hours on identity, Perry. And I mean, you know, identity is, I think it's the broken play in this whole thing. And I, and I, and I, and I'm going to blame the, I'm going to blame your clients. Facebook is just being greedy. They have no incentive not to be greedy. I'm serious. They don't right now. They make all their money in advertising. I'm going to give you a really bad example, but it, it was on the front page of the New York Times, and I and I and I and I have to be very careful. If you guys want to edit this out, it's fine. But Nicholas Kristof wrote an article in the New York Times three four weeks ago about Pornhub being the largest site for porn in the world. And it was very telling. And what you talked about was, look, I'm not saying there shouldn't be porn. I'm not being a, uh, whatever you want to call it, uh, a prude. But there's underage people and revenge porn and people who didn't approve of it. And PayPal's already stopped the payments. But what about you, Amazon, uh, MasterCard and Visa? And within two weeks, they both cut off the funding. And guess what? Pornhub, which was bigger than YouTube, which is filled with hate speech and other things, and said, I can't do this within two weeks, took off 80% of the videos and has got a plan in place to take off all the others. And why? Because their money was threatened. I know this is a hard example to talk about. And the only reason I do is it was on the front page of the Times, Nicholas Kristof and its major companies. And the truth is Facebook has no incentive to not do this. And that's a problem because they got 6 million small mom and pops putting a buck in a day or whatever they're putting in. They don't care about Unilever and they don't care about PNG and they don't care about your clients. And the problem and, is, well, go yeah, ahead. Not only do they not care, but when there was a boycott, I guess, over the summer, the, you know, their opinion was, oh yeah, they'll all be back after the month is over. So it, it was like an empty threat. Right. So you go where the money is, right? Wayne Gretzky followed the puck. Ted said every, you know, how many, Warren Buffett, you follow the money, right? The FBI, Al Capone, it's always been follow the money. Yeah. So if advertising is this spigot, now this brings me to something else that I think is broken. Fraud is everywhere in the internet. 
you know, if you don't have real identity and you can't know that that machine is a verified machine, then, you know, how do you stop the thousands of bot farms that there's 5,000 machines behind that pixel and you just bought 5,000 impressions that never exist in the world? Why in the world are we accepting a click-through rate of 0.0001%? Because there's fraud. And I, and I think, and I'm going to go back to it. I, you know, I know you guys are phenomenal, your clients, and they're going to be really mad at me, but I think the clients have to stop this. And I think the clients have to demand more because I go back to the way I was brought up in this industry is it's the client's money. And I feel like we have to defend the client's money. It's what I'm trying to do with, um, you know, safeguard privacy in a different way. I'm not dealing with fraud and all that because I think that's technical, but I, I think clients have to demand more. And I think we need real identity tied into real census data, tied into real ways to look at the audiences in a new and a different way. There are some products where you don't need to know that I'm Richie Glassberg and where I live. You just need to know that I'm a male and that, you know, I got a beard. If you want to sell me something from my beard, you don't need to know anything else about me or that I may have a little shampoo problem. So I use my head and shoulders. That's all you got to know. You don't need to know everything else about me. You don't need to know my household income. You don't need to know anything else, right? I'm trying to embarrass myself as much as I can, ladies. <laughs> so, you know, we we like to measure outcomes and, you know, we kind of like to look at everything from what's working, what's not working, everything in between. So, you know, I think you already have said clicks are are really bad. But, you know, how did the use of clicks affect other areas of digital advertising? I, I mean, you could you could argue that what it did was was stop the development of real identity and real accountability. What's a click? Right. I mean, you know, it gives no sorry. The pooch came down. He needs a biscuit. Um, it gives no weight to the message. There there is art and science. Let's stop kidding ourselves. You know, there is, you're in good hands means something. Let me tell you, the last five months, the Rogers rate, the Mahomes rate, there's no, that State Farm campaign is phenomenal. I'm not in the market for insurance right now. What they're doing is they've made an ad campaign that's explaining to the consumers that everybody is treated special. Why do I need a click to measure that? Where is the brand lift study on that? Where is the other things? Where is the growth of their business? Where is the foot traffic to state, state farm agents? Where is the referrals lead? Why is a click have anything to do with that? I'm not gonna click on that ad, I'm gonna watch that ad. What do I need to click on it for? Yeah. I mean, I mean, my problem is, and I'm and I'm yeah, the click's fine, but it it stunted the ability to have other different measures. And, you know, you never well, know what was became, it. Early on, I mean, the click became the proxy for engagement. Which is wrong. And it was wrong. But it was the only proxy that folks had at the time. And this is just me talking. You know, you know the world, the digital world got, uh, you, know, um, you know, it leaned heavily into... Um, oh direct response media. Totally. And they're looking for an engagement metric and we kind of fell into it. <clears throat> the other thing I thought that you th said was pretty interesting is that I've always believed clients want choice. They want to have choices. So you're saying, you know, clients need to, um, you know, have other things presented to them, you know, that they, they need other things to select. You know what's happened? That, that is stopped. 
there is no choice anymore in how those metrics are being used. And, um, you know, it just uh, it perpetuates itself. So, so Perian, let's go back and, you know, we call it the original sin because we're looking back on it. At the beginning, we had a click, we had these other things. There wasn't the sophistication in bots. There wasn't the sophistication in computing. It was okay. So let's play it out. It was direct response. You said it. So measure it like direct response. Then as things grew, but let's be honest, there wasn't a lot of video. It was hard. We all know sight, sound, and motion is great. Yes, a print ad, don't, don't all the print people are gonna kill me. You know, if you're if you're reading road and track for a guy, that's like guy porn is seeing all the great cars in there. And if you're re, if you're getting married, the Cosmo wedding edition is like girl porn, all the dresses in there. I mean, it's what we go through, right? It's real. I mean, let's not let's be honest about this stuff. This is just real. Um and there's engagement there, but sight, sound, and motion is really wonderful, and it brings a whole nother dimension to people. And at the beginning, the internet was flat. We put videos all over. scene. I know we could download them. Nobody had a you know you know baud modem, you know whatever. It was stupid, but we did because we had them, right? Um, so so your question is interesting. If we're going to fall down that road at some point, when did we realize it's not just direct response, Perry Ann? When Carly and Susan, should we have said, wow, this is branding and come up with new metrics? So let's say there was a decision tree. At the beginning, it was this because it had to be. But as it grew, why didn't it grow? And then you layered complexity on. And then I think the last 10 years of programmatic has broken everybody's shit. They're putting stuff out there in places that nobody has any clue. It's black box. Nobody's sharing their data on there. Nobody's sharing their algorithms. And I think they're taking 50 to 60%. And it's all wasted. It's all lost in the chain. I mean, there's a lot of people smarter than me who'll give you the facts on how much is taken off of every bite. You know, if you're if you're spending a buck and you're a PNG and only 20 cents of it goes to get the the actual in front of the consumer, I'd be mad as hell. I don't know what the real number, I mean, they're around there, right, Perry Ann? It's something like 60 to 70% comes off the top, right, guys? You guys have this data, right? Sure, sure. So sure, it's, it's, a model that, it's a model that only exists in that media form. Stupid, stupid. <laughs> and I'll layer on what I'm doing. The law, the GDPR and CCPA is clear that if you're marketer between you and the consumer in the US and the human in Europe, you're responsible for everybody in there. There could be 50 companies in there. If one of those companies blows the consent string, they're not gonna come after ground truth. The regulator's gonna say, what's a groundhog? Ah, I wanna go after you know this big brand over here. I'm not gonna name one because I don't get somebody in trouble, but they know what the brands are. They don't know what the ad tech company is, yeah. you know? I mean, so, I mean, part of me, I mean, we're, we're jumbling up a lot of the, the thoughts in here, but the, the problem is we want outcomes, we want sex, success and failures, we want all this stuff, but we don't want to take the time to come up and figure out how do we really measure it right. And I, and I think there's a lot of environmental issues there. I think the, the, there's been a failure on the sales side. I think AdTech and MarTech have sold a bill of goods on stuff and haven't been accountable. Um, I think George Ivan, the MRC, has done a great job trying to come up with standards and hold people to them. It's very expensive. Even with that, again, I go back to Facebook like 17 times blowing the, the numbers. Um, I think it's really hard to be a CMO these days. I think there's so much pressure on being a CMO and you and you you have an opaque supply system where if you're the 
if you're the, the, the procurement person at you name the client, you know exactly how much the cardboard costs, exactly how much every bit of, 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 of raw materials to make that product down to the millimeter and down to, you know, the, the hundredth of a penny for shipping weight, you know, all that and advertising this black box. And I think that puts a lot of pressure on people. And that's why I'm saying that if we had better identity and ways to be able to show real outcomes in the future, which is what I want people to work on, then I think the procurement people could say, oh, now I can see the lifetime value. I would argue, you know, Carly and Susan and Perry, and that none of your clients can really, really tell you they know the lifetime value of the client they get from digital, right? And I think these things are all tied together and it's a it's not an easy, easy issue to fix. OK, I'm still catching my breath from your introduction, <laughs> but I all have right. a question for you. <laughs> yeah. Can you talk to us about that line between privacy and relevancy? Like sometimes it feels that the ad world wants to be in both places at the same time. But are these two opposing forces or can they work together? All right. I, I, will, I will use me as an example, right? If I have a health issue, right? I am willing to give up some privacy because I want to go to WebMD and I want to say, hey, I'm this, I'm this, what do you got on this? Or I want to go to the Mayo Clinic and say, I'm this, I'm this, I'm this, right? I think where it's relevant, I'm willing to trade some of my privacy to a trusted partner. I was on the rowing machine this morning and my specialized laces on my Merrill hiking, my Merrill, you know, sneakers that I use broke and you can't get them in the store. I came inside, I sat down at my iPad, I went to the Merrill website, I picked the shoelaces they have there, six bucks a piece. I don't want to give them all my information. I didn't check the box for them to send me information. I didn't check the box. I used um, Apple Pay or PayPal to check out because I don't want to give them the information except for my shipping information and my credit card because that's all they should get from me. And to me, that's the difference between relevance and privacy. If I'm in the market for a, a house, I'm going to need to go to somebody like, I'll make it up, they saw their ads all over the NFL games this weekend, Rocket Mortgage. So if I want to buy a house, I'm going to go to Rocket Mortgage and I'm going to say, here's my income history. Here's what I'm doing. Relevance and privacy. It's not that bright of a line. It's just common sense. If I need something that is high touch or that, or if I want to go to Carvana and buy a car online, I got to give my driver's license number because I got to prove that I got a license. I got to give my address because I got to register. It's not that big of a trade-off. Now, but, you know, I go consumers to, are all like, you know, you got your, your children are just a, a, a tick younger than uh, than mine. Um, how consumers feel depending on their age, income, where they live, their experiences, you know, they feel differently about what Carly was just talking about, you know, privacy and relevancy. You know, you read more a lot more about this than I do. Um, what do you think the current statuses about how consumers are looking at this you know are are they thinking about we just talked about facebook right are they sitting around trashing facebook or are they you know happy to um you know let them do what they're doing i I mean i don't know that's a great question perian i mean i'm not a social scientist 
Um, what we're seeing and the stuff I'm reading out of Europe and when I talk to people, I mean, so there's a gray area, right? So there's the shoelace idea and there's the medical idea. We know who those two are on either ends of it. Perianne, is there a little bit of space in the center there where some people may trade some information and not realize it's privacy? I would argue to you the reason we got GDPR and we have CCPA is because of that backlash. And I think it's of all ages. I mean, not a teenager. They don't care. They don't. Their prefrontal cortex isn't hooked up, so they have no idea what they're doing. But I, I think you're seeing the young adults who are thinking about it a little bit more. I think you're seeing people that have been burned by the internet more reputationally. Um, you know, all these other the dark side of the internet, which you read about a lot and is out there. And I think that privacy is there. So um, maybe the line isn't as bright as I painted it, but I do think there are two sides of that line. And, and I do think my 21-year-old and 23-year-old care about it. And you know, when I talk to their friends, I think they care about it. I don't think people are just going out there and putting everything out there online. I, they, they have a friend who's been burned, who've had revenge this, revenge that. They've been doxxed, they've done other things. So I think people, I mean, if you didn't think people were about privacy, why did the Signal app crash on Friday when people tried to download it? And why are people so mad that WhatsApp is changing their privacy to give that information to Facebook? That right there is telling you that that people do care about it. And that's anecdotal. I mean, I'm not I'm not running a Yankelovich survey of youths, but you know, I, I bet if somebody, I bet we could find the data out there, Perry. I think so because the three pillars of how anything actually operates, right? Are, are, is, is kind of like the regulatory environment. We're about to have, uh, you know, God willing, a new administration tomorrow. So we've got the regulatory environment. We have consumer demand, right? Yep. Consumer demand, which is really, really strong. And then we have the marketer advertiser, you know, part of the stool. And the marketer and advertiser part of the stool, well, they have to do what the regulations are and they're going to follow consumer intent. So I think that for everyone involved in this is to try to watch all three of those pieces, you know, as, as much as we can. That's kind of, you know, you know, that's kind of like where I am on the, on the where this is going to be heading. Perry Ann, 85% of the voters in California passed CPRA, which is a much tougher version of CCPA. Nevada is a yeah, that's a big That's a big number. Right. Nevada, I think it was 80 to 85. It, it was over 80. It was a big number. I, I don't want to quote the exact number. I don't want to get it wrong. But Nevada is adjacent. They already have a privacy law. We expect Oregon, Washington, Washington, just a couple of votes. Washington's always going to look a lot more like GDPR. You're going to have a patchwork of legislation in this country. To your point, Perry Ann, going back to one other question, look, we pass COPA laws. Why? Because we know that a child doesn't know that they need privacy, but we have to protect them. I mean, we, we can't kid around and say, well, nobody needs privacy online. Of course they do. We passed COPA how many years ago to protect children online? I mean, you know, this is, I think the last 10 years, programmatic advertising trashed the internet industry because you'd go somewhere, you'd look at something and you got followed around and it became creepy to everybody at any age. And I think that to me, that's what drove these laws. If we've driven this far that we have such a sweeping law in Europe and we've got these two laws in California, then I'm gonna say where there's smoke, there's fire and people care about it, Perry Ann. They care, otherwise these laws would never have come into play. This wasn't just a bureaucrat throwing a law up there. 
These were ballot initiatives. These were driven by anger of consumers who are being tracked around. And it goes back to, we didn't know who they were. It was a blind cookie. How many times, and I love Amazon, right? I talked about Amazon earlier. How many times have I shopped on Amazon, bought the thing, and still I get the retargeting ads? And I'm like, and they're a good actor, right? Yeah. I mean, now you go to, God forbid, I didn't go to the Amazon store, which is a good actor. I go to some other store. I mean, I want to see how many Merrill ads I'm going to get in the next, you know, 30 days, because that's when their window is, because I went and looked at the website this morning to buy shoelaces. I'm not in the market for shoes. I bet you I'll get ads. not busting on them, but I bet I will, Perry Ann. Adverse selection is a funny thing. Yeah. You know, it, it can work. It can work in a positive way, but it can also work in a very destructive way. You know, and uh, Julia Angwin, who has written about that, I think she's at ProPublica now, um, you know, that's really worth uh, digging into if you're interested in anybody out there listening, um, because there's two sides to that, to that, um, you know, suppression, you know, uh, conversation. I think Susan's got a question. Yeah, just actually listening to all this, how do you see this really um, all coming together and getting the industry on board um, to kind of make some of these changes? Well, I think the unintended consequences of the laws is it's going to make the big bigger in the short term. And I think it's going to damage the long tail. And when I mean long tail, I mean mid tail as well. I mean, if you're um, if you're a publisher and you don't have uh, significant logged in data, you're dead in this. And the worst actors out there are going to get the most benefit from this because there's going to be a flight to safety and those people can deal with privacy. That said, I'm optimistic that I think there needs to be a completely new thought process around identity. And, you know, we, you know, this is a private podcast, but we do have to be careful. I mean, two major public companies that, you know, we all know, LiveRip and, and Trade Desk, who are one's a $5 billion company, one's a 20 billion or something like that. They're major companies, you know, made an announcement together that they were going to do this, you know, ID 2.0, right, ladies? Half an hour later, you can go look at the, the PR Newswire and a trillion dollar company, Apple, made a small announcement saying they were never going to allow the hashed email to be the connector and identity. Well, they just kind of just took a, sorry, boys. <laughs> poop, a poop. I didn't want to say it, Barry, but they just went and took a dump on those guys because they're a trillion dollar company and they're not going to let the hashed email be the identifier. Well, who's going to come up with what the right identifier is? In some cases, the email as the first party owner is a legitimate identifier. Amazon legitimately owns my email as a first party identifier. Now, Who's going to come up with the methodology to share that with people and where it can be shared fairly and what should identity really be? And you know what? You know, there's so many. I, I just believe that there are so many startups attacking this. I'm not touching it. It's a technical problem that I that's not in my you know wheelhouse. I'm trying to solve a different business problem, but I think there needs to be the solution of how do we come up with real identity? And then to exactly what Carly asked, in what case, if I'm looking for a medical thing, do I unlock that box? Now, let's be honest, a cookie is a bad word for a, a, a pretty cool file. If I had my identity in that box, right? And I went to WebMD, I would say, okay, WebMD, you can open two sides of the box because I want that. But if I go to PNG and I just want to find the nearest person that's got head and shoulders, I keep the box closed. 
relevance, privacy, where does identity come? And then the question is, now let's go to the second leg of the stool, the advertising market. In the advertising market, I want to be able to say, oh, Richie viewed it, but I don't know it's Richie, but I know it's in an individual. And maybe for the cohorts, like I talked about in the article, it's a male 25 to 54, and maybe the cohort has some um, uh, you know, income or kids if it's appropriate to that product. So there, Susan and Carly, there's your relevance. If it's a product that needs to know income, it knows that I'm a verified person, but it doesn't get to know I'm Richard Glassberg, and it knows my income is X. To me, that's identity in a box, identity that's pretty cool and is smart identity that can share. But then the identity then goes to the tracking and the ad server should be able to say, here is a verified identity. So that means those 5,000 pixels behind it with the bot farms can't be that verified identity. They're cut off. Then they know it's me. Then they could take the data, just like the Nielsen data, and I hate to use that like the word tissue, but they can get age identity, know it's verified, and put it against cohorts. Because when you were running AT&T, you, you had some products that were certain cohorts. When you were running you know, Sears, you had different cohorts. When you were running other client stuff, you had other cohorts. But as long as that's protected and it can't follow me, I think that is what the future needs to be, not a dumb thing that's just tied into my email. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And we're so, I'm so happy to hear that you're optimistic that we can get there, but how do we get there? Like what feedback are, are you hearing on your ideas and, and, and how do we get there? I think it's gonna be a really tough couple of years. Um, I am hearing that the ID space of that hashed email is become a commodity in the US, that you've got like 35 people out there pitching it. I hear some people that have really worked on ID in Europe have pulled out of the space because they're just watching the US market collapse around this. Um, so I think it's gonna be painful before it gets better. And I think somebody's gonna have to come up with a new technology that we don't know of yet. And if that's true, that means the short term is gonna be bad in my view. And you're going to have more walled gardens and you're going to have less data opacity. I think it's going to be harder for your clients, the CMOs in the short run. But I'll I'll be optimistic. I think if CMOs stood up to ad tech and MarTech and said, you guys got to solve this or I'm going to put money in other places that I know work, whether it's CTV, OTV, whatever, at least you got some kind of stuff there and you know there's there's less fraud because you know it's hard to fake a cable box and a TV and all that stuff. I'm not saying it's impossible and I'm sure there are people who are doing it, but it's less. And I, I would try to you know follow the money. I would try to put pressure on people to come up with better identity. And I also don't think identity should be owned by Facebook or Google or any of those people. I think I, I, think, I, I remain I think, optimistic. I think that CMOs care about one thing. Well, they care about growth, but they care about their brand. And um, in the, you know, painting this picture in the face of all this, they're, they're going to make sure that their brand is healthy and set up, you know, for future, future success. Uh, Richie, usually what we do when we wrap up uh, our podcast is we just broadly ask people what they, you know, is there anything else they want to say? But I got, I'm going to throw you a little curveball and ask you, any predictions for 2021? No, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, so I'll be a little bit negative here. I am very worried about 
the post-truth world we've been thrown into the last four plus years. And I don't think you unring that bell or unsee that damage or undo that deep-seated issues. Um, and I think we as a country have a lot that we need to fix and we need to be introspective on and figure out. And I don't think these social media platforms are helping. And I think uh, I'll be frank with you. I've been off Facebook since April 1st of 2017. I go on three times a year. I haven't, you know, I'm a human being. I go on at my birthday to say thanks to people. And, and I finish it with a note every year after I say thanks to everybody. I say, hey, uh, if you want to talk to me in the real world, you know my email, you know my cell phone, just call me, chat, talk to me. And I think um, my negative output is, 2021, I think we have a lot of pain to get through. I don't think, um, uh, I think the big lie has tremendously hurt our country. Um, I am optimistic that we can pull together and fix it. Um, I think social media has, I, you know, I, I read a ton of stuff. I don't know if you guys read Heather Cox Richardson. Her stuff is just amazing. Amazing. I if love you it. Could, if you could get her on your podcast, I think your clients I will love it. Absolutely you know, love it. She's amazing. Yeah. And she writes a lot of stuff. And, and she and Ezra Klein, and, you know, I read a lot of people. But I see Ezra Klein's got a new podcast coming yeah, uh, but twice I think, a week. I think Heather Cox Richard, one of the people I read, and I'll give her credit for it, talked about the fairness doctrine and when that went away. And I think um, there is no excuse for allowing false information on a public platform. And I'm worried that our regulators understand what CBS is and don't understand what Facebook is. And they don't understand that, um, that you know, the government pays for the internet and the backbone and all this stuff, and it should be regulated like electricity and other things. And I just don't believe that it is right in our society today to put something knowingly false that's racist, anti-Semitic, anti-women, misogynist, whatever, and is false on a public platform. And I, well, I, I have one. I'm, I have one reason to be optimistic, and that's people like you, you Rich. Rich, you are a national treasure, and, <laughs> and a treasure to our industry. Really, really, I've known you forever. You know, as long as there's people like you out there, um, bringing up the hard questions, it's gonna it's gonna force people, especially the younger generation in our industry. Um, you know, to, to stand up and, um, and, you know, and be a force for change. So um, I, I want to say thank you for joining us. Yes. And, and on behalf of Media Plus Advisors, I want to thank you for your time, your enthusiasm, your passion, your candor for not dropping too many F-bombs, for only talking about porn a little bit. <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs> and to our listeners who um, want to hear more about Safeguard Privacy, please check out the website. There's a, You could get a demo. Um, and then the, uh, the last thing before I say goodbye is I want to invite our listeners to email us at info at mediaplusadvisors.com if you have any um, suggestions for, for topics that you'd like to hear about. So thank you for listening and uh, until next time. <laughs>